John, we're going to look at chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. And chapter 9 really should be read together with chapter 8. Jesus in chapter 8 declared to be the light of the world. Everybody remember that? Or does anybody remember that? He said, I am the light of the world. And now in chapter 9, what he does is he demonstrates how he is this marvelous light through the healing of the physical blindness of a poor beggar. That's what he does. Apart from Christ's penetrating light, every one of us is spiritually blind. As a matter of fact, a person who is spiritually blind, but has his or her spiritual eyes opened by Jesus, has eternally greater vision than a person with 20-20 vision. Do you know that? You could be blind physically and have greater vision than a person, you know, who, who has 20-20 vision. But even we who have been, had the glorious light of Jesus Christ shine upon us, and now we are regenerated, now we're born again, now we're saved, we still have blind spots that need Christ's light to dispel the darkness in our lives. So this message is not just for unbelievers. It might, as you read it, it might sound like it's for unbelievers. This is for every single person, because we all blind without Christ. And even the Christian has blind spots in his life, which we'll talk about towards the end. So let's read John 9, verses 1 through 7. Would you mind standing for the reading of God's word? <clears throat> As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with his saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, <clears throat> which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. You may be seated. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, as this chapter is being preached, dispel any darkness in our lives that we may now see clearly the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ, and our lives can reflect that glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. You know, when I was around 18 years old, my older cousin, who was it was almost like a, an uncle to me because he was older than me and I always looked up to him. Him and his wife took me and my cousin that was my age camping in Virginia Blue Ridge Mountains. Now, I don't know if you have any, any of you have ever been to the Blue Ridge Mountains. It's spectacular. I mean, it was spectacular. And one of the days that we were camping, we decided to take a tour in one of the local caverns. These caverns were caves. Um, a tour guide was leading leading us and during the tour, the guide stopped us and told us that we were going to experience pitch blackness. I remember this clearly. Now, most of us really have never experienced pitch blackness. I mean, you know, you could go into your bedroom and have the blackout shades and it's dark and it almost seems like it's pitch black. But if you put your hand up in, your, in, your, in, toward, in front of your face, eventually you'll see at least a shadow because light is creeping into cracks or whatever. But this was pitch black. <laughs> um, 
We all stood still, and he shut the light out. And I mean, it was really scary. It was pitch black. There was a deep, deep darkness that took place. You wouldn't dare move up because of fear of stumbling. It was frightening not to be able to see anything, not even a faint shadow. And to be physically blind must have the same result. Deep, deep darkness. But to be spiritually blind is eternally worse. Deep, dense darkness without God. In our text tonight, there's a blind man who has had nothing but darkness from birth. Not only physical darkness, but spiritual darkness. This man was dark. However, he was not only physically blind, but spiritually as well. And what this, this is what characterized this man's whole life, was darkness. Well, we're going to see that this deep darkness is about to be dispelled by the glorious light of the world, Jesus Christ. Here, Jesus highlights through this healing of the blind man, spiritual blindness of religion without Christ. And what I want to propose to you tonight is only Christ, and think about this, only Christ, the light of the world, can remove spiritual blindness from our lives, which ultimately brings glory to Him. Chapter 9, as I said earlier, is an extension of chapter 8, where Jesus claims to be the light of the world during the Feast of the Tabernacles. I preached on the Feast of the Tabernacles um, in chapter 7. And chapter 9 portrays what happens when Christ's light shines. Some are made to see like the blind man, and some are blinded by his light and turn away. And God's word has that kind of effect on people. Amen. It'll either set them free, Amen. or it'll harden their hearts and they'll turn away. Right. This chapter also prepares the way for chapter 10 where we encounter another sharp contrast. John is always filled with sharp contrasts, if you read through the Gospel of John. Chapters 8 and 9 is light and darkness, and chapter 10 is contrast between the good shepherd who gives his life for the sheep and the false shepherd, or the thieves and the hirelings who cared nothing for the lost sheep of Israel, which are the same people who he was speaking to in chapter 9. Now, this healing of the blind man was the sixth of seven signs that John organizes his gospel around. John organizes his gospel around seven signs. This is the sixth. These signs were for the purpose, not just to, wow, Jesus, you're doing miracle signs and wonders. No, they were the purpose that went beyond the display of the power to reveal Christ's identity as Messiah and the Son of God and to lead unbelievers to faith in Him. That was the purpose of the signs. And John makes a point of that. There are seven main points I see in this chapter. And I will preach this chapter in three or four parts. Tonight is part one. And we're going to look at three of the seven points. The problem, the cause, and the cure. Let's go to the first one, the problem. Most of us are not physically blind. I think, we, I think everyone here is, um, can see. Maybe not 20-20 vision, but we can see. We're not physically blind. But our problem is, is all of us are spiritually blind apart from Christ. Verse 1 again. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. Now it's not quite clear of the precise timing of when Jesus saw this man. It must have taken place in Jerusalem because Jesus told a man in verse 7 to wash in the pool of Siloam, which is in Jerusalem. It was in the temple. 
The blind man was also a beggar, as verse 8 tells us, which probably means he was probably begging in the temple area, where people were coming to worship to give beggars money. Also, it was during the Feast of Tabernacles, or between the Feast of Tabernacles and the Feast of Dedication. The scholars really don't know exactly when this took place. However, the problem is clear. Certain things might be unclear in the text, but the problem is clear and simple. This man was blind from the time he was born. He, up to this point, never saw the light of day. In antiquity, in ancient times, blindness was far more common than today. And if uncared for, the blind person would be forced to beg. We don't have that problem like that today. I mean, uh, you know, we have cures and uh, uh, there's, there's, there's medicine. And they didn't have that back then. So blindness was very common. And one of the earmarks of the coming messianic age in the Old Testament is the blind receiving sight. And, and Isaiah prophesied that in spite of Israel's failures and human unbelief, God planned to provide salvation and it included both physical and spiritual healing, which was demonstrated in Jesus' ministry. Of course, this is going to be fully realized when Christ returns. And one of the marks of that is the blind receiving sight. Isaiah 29.18 says, The eyes of the blind shall see. And Isaiah 35.5 says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. And Jesus himself said in Luke, the Gospel of Luke, uh, the 4th chapter, 18th verse, that he came to proclaim recovery of the sight to the blind. This was one of the miracles the Jews um, expected to see in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. So the problem is clear. And I think we'd all agree to that. At least the physical problem is blindness. Before I came to Christ, I was an alcoholic. And I enjoyed drinking and justified it. If anyone would come up to me and tell me that I had a problem with drinking, I would have had denied it and made the excuse that I don't think I drink that much and I don't really get drunk. But in reality, I was getting drunk. And I was drinking excessively. You see, I never denied drinking, but denied the real issue of I have a problem, I drink excessively, and I do get drunk. It wasn't until I became a Christian that I acknowledged the problem and eventually was delivered from drinking. And it's been 37 years, and praise God for that. This man obviously didn't deny that he was blind, but at this point he didn't know or acknowledge his spiritual blindness until later when Jesus reveals it to him. So the physical problem of his blindness was clear. However, in the minds of the disciples, although the problem is clear, the reason why he was blind wasn't, which is the second point, the reason for his blindness. Now, to be healed of blindness, whether physically or spiritually, is ultimately for the glory of God. Verses 2 through 5 again. Do we have it up there? And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents, that he was born blind. Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Now, most Palestinian Jews of their day believed that sin and suffering were connected. And the disciples believed that the the blindness might have been caused by his sin. In other words, if you were suffering, 
It was because you sinned. And the nature of Jesus' disciples' question was either, this man sinned in his mother's womb, or his parents did before he was born. And they probably based this question on certain Old Testament passages. For example, Exodus 25 and a few other places says that the iniquities of the fathers are visited upon their children, which in the disciples' mind would mean that it was his parents' sin while he was born blind. And concerning personal sin, they may have thought of Numbers 12.10 when Moses' sister, Miriam, rebelled against Moses and the Lord struck her with leprosy. And Ezekiel 18.4 when the prophet said, the soul that sins shall die. Uh, They may have had these scriptures in mind and in relating them to the man's blindness and his personal sin. They thought there were only two options, either his sin or his parents' sin. There were no better, excuse me, there were no better than Job's miserable comforters who came to the conclusion that Job was a terrible sinner because he was suffering terribly. Young and immature Christians can be very insensitive and judgmental of fellow believers suffering. And I was part of that. They're no better than the disciples here in chapter 9 or Job's miserable comforters. They see a Christian sick, right? Or going through a hard time and they'll say, brother, you must have some secret sin in your life. Or, sister, you need more faith. I don't know how many of you have heard that, but I have. I heard a, uh, a visiting minister one time in the, the last church I attended who actually said, and I'll never forget this, and I was standing in the back, and when he said this, I almost fell to the floor. He said, if you are not healed, it is because you do not have enough faith. And it was, it's devastating. Now, to be fair to the disciples' question, their question was not totally ridiculous. Generally speaking... Generally speaking, you need to hear this. It is true that suffering is ultimately the result of sin due to the fall. We see this in Genesis chapter 2. And in Romans 5.12, Paul describes the result of the fall. He says, do we have that up there? Romans 5.12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread To all men because all sin. So it is generally a true principle in scripture. It is also true that sickness can be a consequence of personal sin. As I said before, Moses' sister Miriam was stricken with leprosy because she rebelled against God's man, Moses. Uh, When Jesus healed the man by the pool of Bethesda, in the fifth chapter of John, he told the man, see you are well. What did he say? Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. And didn't the Apostle Paul tell the Corinthian church, who were taking the Lord's Supper with indifference, that the reason why, because they were taking the Lord's Supper with indifference, that's why some of them were sick, and that's why some of them even died. Also, we see sometimes, tragically, children suffering because of their parents' sinful choices. For example, if a mother smokes or drinks During pregnancy, a baby's health can be jeopardized. I mean, we see that. If you drink, you can get cirrhosis of the liver. So sin does and can cause um, diseases and sickness. However, it is foreign to scripture that a child will be punished for his or her parents' sin. Okay, Deuteronomy 
24.16 obliterates that. You have that up there? Father, fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. So although the Bible generalizes the result of sin and personal sins can cause sickness, it nowhere makes it an absolute statement in every case. Dr. Bruce Milne, a pastor, theologian, and professor, says in his commentary, while the Bible allows a general relationship between suffering and sin due to the fall, it refuses to permit the principle to be individualized in every case. So let me summarize. Can sin cause sickness? Yes. A person may get, like I said before, cirrhosis of the liver due to drinking excessively or lung cancer due to smoking. Does sin always cause sickness? No, it doesn't always cause sickness. Now notice that Jesus doesn't deny the generalization of the connection between sin and suffering, but denies the universality of that connection. He corrects the error in the disciples' thinking. He says, it was not that this man sinned or his parents. Jesus was not denying uh, the universal sinfulness of man, but meant that his blindness was not caused by some specific sin. Instead, the blind man's affliction was going to be used for the glory of God. Now I know, I know, I know some poor soul will twist this and say that God was cruel to do this. Why did he allow a poor man to be blind his whole life and forced to be beg, and forced to beg? Uh, why would God do that? And people sometimes have the audacity to talk like that about the creator of the universe. And I'm glad he's patient. I really am. But the Bible scholar F.F. Bruce says, this does not mean that God deliberately caused the child to be born blonde in order that after many years, his glory should be displayed in the removal of blindness. To think so would again be an aspiration on the character of God. It does, not, it does mean that God overruled the disaster of the child's blindness so that when the child grew to manhood, he might, by recovering his sight, see the glory of God in the face of Christ. And others, seeing this work of God, might turn to the true light of the world. That's what happened. And what's happening here? God sovereignly chooses to use this man's blindness for his own glory. Did you know... Did you know that even evil could ultimately contribute to the greater glory of God? Even evil? And if you doubt that, you need again to focus on the crucifixion, which was the greatest evil of men, and yet the greatest glory of God. This healing, although was a compassionate act of God on a poor blind beggar, was no doubt not about this man's comfort, but the glory of God. Kenneth Gangel said it like this. The focus is not on the comfort of the creature, but on the exaltation of the creator. And that's why we say, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. We start off with exalting the Savior. 
The works of God, and in this case, healing the blind man, did bring glory to God. The disciples' focus was backwards. They were analyzing the man's condition. Jesus' focus was forward, putting God's power on display for the benefit of the man and the people, which ultimately brought glory to God. You see, it says, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. And the Greek, the Greek word for displayed means to reveal a cause to be seen, to make known. In other words, Christ's healing of this blind man, the sinful world would see a compassionate God. But not only a compassionate God who opened the eyes of a blind man, but a compassionate, merciful, gracious, loving, sovereign God who opens the spiritual eyes of lost sinners. That was the point. And by this healing, God's power is displayed like the 4th of July fireworks. This shows us clearly God's deep concern for lost humanity. The physical, emotional, and spiritual need of lost humanity. And was on display for all to see. Excuse me. For all to see. That's the works of God accomplished through His Son, Jesus Christ. And now, the contrast, blindness and sight, go to night and day. In verse 4 and 5 again. We must... Work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Jesus, no doubt, was the sent one. However, he wasn't sent by the Father to feel to free Israel of Roman oppression. That's not why he came. He wasn't sent to give them daily sustenance. He wasn't sent to give them an easy life. No, that's not why he was sent. He was sent to accomplish the Father's work. He was sent to proclaim good news to the poor. He was sent to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. He was sent to set at liberty those who were oppressed. He was sent to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That is why Jesus was sent. This is the works of God. And we must notice that Jesus includes his disciples in this. With himself in his work. Jesus and his disciples were to work while it was day. Because when the night came, the work would cease. Now we need to look at a few things in verses 4 and 5. First, the phrase, while it is day, Jesus is uh, conveying a sense of urgency. That's right. The gospel is urgent. People are lost and dying and going to hell. And there's an urgency. That's why we need to never be ashamed of the gospel and to be able to share share the gospel with everyone we meet. Every day, I wake up and I pray, God, give me someone. My my heart's cry is that I can share the gospel with someone. Now, it doesn't always happen every day, but that's my prayer. And I hope it's yours, too. So there's a sense of urgency. Second, secondly, he says, while it is day, refers to the time Jesus was walking on earth. Thirdly, night would then mean Christ's death, burial, and ascension. Fourthly, while Jesus was still on earth, he gave the world his light. To put it in other words, the short time Jesus was with them, he was the light that dispelled the darkness in people's lives. So there was an urgency to do the works of the the Father sent Jesus to do along with his disciples before the crucifixion came, when they would be overtaken by darkness and unable to work. There was a short period of time when the crucifixion came and the disciples were not able to work. 
Now, we, we must look at this in light of the whole Bible called biblical revelation. At this point, Jesus did not explain the role of the Holy Spirit in revealing their future ministry. His focus right at that point with the disciples was on his earthly ministry. Chapters 14, 15, and 16 of John is where Jesus explains the role of the Holy Spirit, which he would be the light of the world through them. Jesus did not stop being the light of the world once he was crucified and ascended into heaven. He He didn't stop. His light is ever shining brightly by his spirit through believers, bringing God's glory. So we see the reason clearly why this man was born blind, to glorify God. Jesus, the light of the world, sent by the Father to do the work of his Father, which in this case was to heal a blind man while he was on earth, brought glory to God the Father. The Christian Herald magazine an article had an article that said, Gil Dodds was a minister's son who came out of Nebraska to step off the fastest mile ever run on an indoor track. The time was 4 minutes, um, 7.2 seconds. At the end of the race, the crowd wondered when he picked up a microphone to acknowledge their applause and said, I thank the Lord for guiding me through the race and seeing fit to let me win. I thank him always for his guiding presence. The rafters of Madison Square Garden must have trembled. These were new words there. I don't win those races. God wins them. You see, God has given me all I have. I have one great lack. I didn't have the one thing that the coaches say a a long-distance runner simply must have. I couldn't sprint at the end of the mile. But God took care of that. In place of the sprint, he gave me stamina. And that is correct. Dodd sprints the whole distance. He sets a killing pace all the way. So Gil Dodds, like the blind man, Gil Dodds' lack, like the blind man, his lack of not seeing was his inability to sprint. But God took care of that and gave him endurance and he set a record. And he gave the glory to the Lord. And now whether we're blind and are made to see or set a record for the fastest mile, or come to faith in Christ because he healed our spiritual blindness, all the glory belongs to God. Disabilities can and should bring glory to God. This healing in chapter 9 of the blind man is not to be made an absolute truth that everyone who asks will be healed. Now there's, there's certain Christian circles that do this, and it's absolutely out of context with the whole biblical revelation. There's no doubt that Jesus uses man's blindness to teach about faith and to glorify God. Listen, we live in a fallen world and sometimes innocent people do suffer. It took God, if God took all our suffering away, whenever we asked, we probably would follow him for comfort and convenience, not out of love like the Jews did when Jesus fed them or when he fed them miraculously, the bread. They followed Jesus until his teaching became offensive. Regardless of the reasons of our suffering, Jesus will see us through it. When we suffer, we need to avoid asking, why did this happen to me? Or what did I do wrong? Instead, we need to pray and ask God to strengthen and help us and get through it. More importantly, we need to ask God to give us a deeper perspective about our suffering. Excuse me. This chapter, <clears throat> this chapter is not about getting healed from every hardship. It's not about that. Jesus healed this blind man 
to illustrate not only his compassion, but also more importantly, that this man would see the glory of Christ and worship him. That's what it's about. The healing of his spiritual blindness was his ultimate healing. Not his blind eyes being open, but his spiritual eyes being open. The point is this. Whether we are sick and healed from sickness, or, or we are sick and die from sickness, we want to glorify God. Peter glorified God in his death. In John 21, verses 18 through 19, Jesus tells Peter, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and you will carry and, and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to what? Glorify God. And Paul said it this way. In Philippians 1.20. Philippians 1.20. He said, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. The point of this text is physical blindness was healed by God's power through Christ for the glory of God, which led to spiritual sight. And that's the point of the text. However, in a broader application, those who have been granted spiritual sight, suffering death, health, eating or drinking, will all be for the glory of God. Whether we're healed, whether we're not healed, whether we're eating, whether we're drinking, whatever we're doing, working, going shopping, everything is done for the glory of God. We saw the problem, blindness. We saw the reason for the glory of God and now the cure. Jesus is now going to demonstrate He's going to give the Jews a living parable that he is the light of the world by healing the blind man. Verses 6 and 7 again. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Now there's four things I want you to see that happened in these two verses which brought about the healing. The first thing is the instrument. What the Lord used to heal the man's eyes. He made clay from his saliva and dirt from the ground. Now, uh, there are many speculations on why he used clay. Some say it was to symbolize that that man was made from dirt. We see this in Genesis. Some of the early church fathers say that in light of Genesis 2 verse 7, that making clay would symbolize the Lord creating a new functioning pair of eyes to replace those which he had never seen. But quite frankly, the text does not say the reason for why he used the mud. And if the text is silent, maybe we should be also. I mean, I read some great reasons why he may have made the mud, you know, but it's really silent. And I think we need to be silent also. Dr. Leon Morris, an Australian New Testament scholar, said, Jesus performed his miracle with a sovereign hand, and he cannot be limited by rules of procedure. He cured how he willed. He wanted to use mud, he used mud. If he wanted to speak a word, he spoke a word. Whatever he did, he did at what he wanted to do, and that's it. He cannot be limited by our preconceived ideas concerning healing. God is not 
in an, a theological box created by American Christianity. God heals who he wants, when he wants, and how he wants. Yes, he never violates his word. We know that. But the problem is not with God violating his word. It's with our shallow understanding of it. And in this particular circumstances, circumstance, God, for whatever reason, used a mixture of saliva and dirt from the ground to make clay and anoint his eyes. That was the instrument Jesus chose to use. I remember when I was a new Christian, and uh, my, my pastor, um, the church I used to go to, was talking about when Jesus washed the disciples' feet. And he said to himself, wow, you know, washing dirty feet? And then he realized it dawned on him, um, this was God, you know. So, you know, we could think of it, uh, saliva, but... You know, it's God. <laughs> it's his saliva. The second thing that happened that brought about this man's healing was the command. Jesus gave him a command. He said, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. Jesus sent him to the pool of Siloam to wash the mud off his eyes. That's what he did. Now, this is very interesting that he sent him to the pool for two reasons. The pool was located... Uh, let me give you a brief background on the Pool of Siloam first, before I give you the two reasons. The pool was located at the southeast corner of the city wall. And during the reign of, some of you may remember this if you're Old Testament scholars, uh, during the reign of King Hezekiah in Judah, when they feared a siege by the Assyrians, Hezekiah had built an underground tunnel where the water flowed from the Gihon Spring, located in the Kidron Valley, to the pool um, uh, the pool of Siloam, so that if the Assyrians would attack and surround the city, they would still have access to the water. And that was a brilliant uh, idea by King Hezekiah. But the two reasons I find this significant and interesting that Jesus sent the blind man to wash off the clay from his eyes is, first one is, um, this was the source of the water in the tabernacle ceremony, which we, what I preached on in chapter 7. When the priests filled the golden pitcher of water, and after the crowd followed the priests up the hill in the temple, he would then pour the water onto the altar. And that water came from the pool of Siloam. The Jews saw this ceremony on multiple levels, which we will not go into. However, the spiritual significance was that Jesus is the source of the water of life. And if Jesus is the source of water of the Feast of the Tabernacles, this poor blind beggar, as Dr. Gary Burke says, is going to experience such water in a profound way. And the second reason why I think it's significant is Jesus, John makes an important note to his readers that the word Siloam means sent. Now, I, I don't know if many of you may not be familiar with this, but over 20 times in John's Gospel, Jesus is described as the one who was sent by God. In other words, the sent one of God is sending the man. Therefore, Jesus is the source of healing, not the pool. I get tired of TV evangelists who tell you to send money. And they will send you a handkerchief of spring water that they prayed over. And when you touch it, you're going to be healed. I wouldn't be surprised if they tell you to sow a seed of $1,000 and they will send you a tub of mud that will heal you when you put it on the part of your body that's sick. And we see this. They make it sound like there is healing power in the product they are selling. There was no healing activity 
in the pool itself, on the mud itself. The healing power came from Christ and Christ alone. But anyway, Jesus used clay as an instrument of healing and gave the command, which leads us to the third thing that happened that brought about this man's healing, the obedience. The blind man obeyed the command of Jesus. Mark this. True saving faith is always accompanied by obedience. If the man said, no, Jesus, I will not go, he would have not have been healed. This man's response to Christ's command symbolized the obedience that marks genuine faith. This man had, which we will see at the end of the chapter. We're going to see the progression of his faith. I'm not suggesting that salvation occurs from obedience. But, and please hear this, obedience is the result from genuine salvation, which is from God alone. We don't get saved because of obedience. We're obedient because we're saved. And the fourth and final thing that happened that brought about this man's healing was the result. The Lord put clay on his eyes, gave the command to go and wash. The man obeyed. And verse 7 tells us the result was he came back seeing. Jesus, the light of the world, gave light to his blind eyes. Now many of you, if not all of you, heard of Helen Keller, who was blind and deaf from birth, but was taught by Ann Sullivan to rely on her other senses to communicate with people. And she said this, Gradually, I got used to silence and darkness that surrounded me, and forgot that it had ever been different until she came, my teacher, who set my spirit free. The blind man only understood darkness. He never experienced life. He, didn't he never saw the tulips in the spring or the daffodils. He never saw the rose bushes. He never saw the moon, the stars, and the sea, the oceans, and the crashing waves. He never experienced that. And he was dependent on others. But his teacher, the light of the world, set his spirit free. Now some of you may be thinking, I only see physical healing here. But as we read on to the end of the chapter, we will see this man's confession of faith in Christ. And we will see the progression of him growing in the knowledge of Christ. When he first asked uh, who healed him, in verse 11, he said a man called Jesus. Then in verse 17, he called Jesus a prophet. And then in verse 31 and 33, he believes Jesus a man of God. And the ultimate and final confession in verse 35 to 38, when Jesus asked him if he believed in the Son of Man, he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. So we see that, and we will see that progression of faith as we go through this chapter. On the other hand, the completely hard-hearted Jews rejected this marvelous light. And please listen carefully. The same light that leads one person can blind another. You can't make this stuff up. That's why I know the Bible is true. You can't make this up. And as I was thinking about this, sitting back, you know, sometimes I'm preparing a message. I was telling my wife today, you know, we prepare. My wife's a teacher, Brian's a preacher, and we all do this. You prepare, you write, you, then you sit back and you think and meditate. And as I was think, sitting back thinking and meditating on this, I remember the story in Acts chapter 13 where Paul and Barnabas were preaching the gospel to a Roman official. Elimus, the sorcerer. And he was telling the Roman official to pay no attention to Paul and Silas. And he tried to turn him away from the gospel. And picking it up at verse 10, Paul said to him, do we have that up there? 
Acts chapter 13, starting with verse uh, 10. You son of the devil, this is Paul telling Elimus, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Elymas was not physically blind. Listen to this. Listen to the opposite what's going on here. Elymas was not physically blind, but opposes the gospel and becomes physically blind, illustrating spiritual darkness. The poor blind man is physically blind, receives Jesus and his gospel, is now healed from physical blindness, illustrating spiritual sight. See the difference? Word God goes out, gives sight to some people, blinds others. Let's conclude. Sin has blinded every single one of us. There's no one exempt from that. We cannot see God's salvation through His Son, Jesus Christ. We're beggars. And all of a sudden, God in His amazing grace and mercy, He washes our blind spiritual eyes, and for the first time we see, and we see forever. All he asks us is to believe him. And that's what happened to this man. He was healed physically and then spiritually. Well, what about Christians? What about us who have been made to see? We now see that we're sinners in need of a savior. We see the Bible is truly the word of God. We now understand the gospel. We believe Jesus is Lord and God. We're saved. We've been born again. We understand. Our spiritual lives have been opened. What about us? Does this message not apply to us? It does. It applies to us too, because we still have blind spots. We still have areas in our lives that need the light of Christ to guide us. Every one of us. I am well aware that I have blind spots in my life, and my wife is constantly reminding me of that. That's why God gives us wives sometimes for the hard-hearted. We always need the, the light of Christ to guide us, to help us with these blind spots. Even though God saved us and we see Jesus the Savior, we have areas in our lives that need God's spotlight. We may be blind to unrighteous anger that lurks in the darkness of our hearts. We need the light of Christ and His Word to expose that darkness so we can confess it and forsake it and be healed of it. Or maybe we don't see sexually, sexual immorality immoral area of our lives. We need Christ's light to expose it so we can confess it and forsake it and be healed. The list of blind spots go on and on. But his light can expose every one of them so we can be healed. And the danger is this. There's a great danger. If we don't think and admit we still have blind spots, then we are like the Jews of Jesus' day who didn't admit they were blind. And the result was their sin remained. I will develop some of these other themes in this chapter the next couple of times I preach. The next two or three parts, we're going to look at this. We looked at the problem, the reason, the cure. Now when I come back, it'll be the confusion, the investigation, the revelation, and the final blindness. Let's pray. And Father, we thank you that Christ is our light.
God, we thank you that many of us here see the light of Christ. We've been saved. We've been born again. We've been washed. We've been regenerated. And now we see. We love Jesus. We see him as Lord and Savior. We understand the gospel. But God, we still have blind spots. We still have areas in our lives that you want to shine your light on. So we can see it, confess it, forsake it, and be healed of it. Help us, God. And help those who may be here tonight that have never come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. I pray, God, that your word tonight was like a spotlight spotlight and shined on their dark heart. Enlighten them, God, that they need a Savior. They need, they need to forsake sin, and they need to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Only you can do that, God. Otherwise, every one of us grow up about in darkness. Let your light shine in Christ's name. Amen.